You're listening to the Caroline Springs Anglican Podcast. As Jimmy said, my name is Albert. Um, So we're going to keep going through our look at the book of Exodus this morning. And if you haven't been with us recently, we've sort of established that there's this dialogue between God and Pharaoh. It's like a face-off, right? So Pharaoh is showing it off to God, keeping his people in Egypt. Even though Moses comes and tells him to let them go. And God shows Pharaoh what he's got in the form of plagues, right? There's been a bunch of plagues recently. We've been going through a chunk at a time uh, through the past few weeks, and that'll take us through to the end of the year, hopefully. So today, um, uh, we're on Exodus chapter 10, and let's have a look at verses 1 to 2 first. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them. That you may tell your children and your grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and how I perform my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. So first off, this very passage, the, the first thing this passage wants us to know is that the reason why God is hardening Pharaoh's heart is to show that he is the Lord, to show the Israelites that he is the Lord. And now the Hebrew word for, Hebrew phrase for doubt harshly uh, suggests something like humiliate, to make fun of, right? So Pharaoh humiliates the king of Egypt to show his people that he is the Lord. And we've read this before. Um, in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And the next one in chapter 7, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against them and bring the Israelites out of it. And then the next one, this is what the Lord says, by this you will know that I am the Lord with the staff that is in my hand. I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. And in the chapter we've just, in the verse we just read, before we take a look at the eighth and ninth plagues, this is the first thing the passage wants us to know. Um, now can anyone remember the rest of the plagues before we look at the eighth and ninth? Yeah, I wrote them down. I couldn't remember either. Um, I've recently read, uh, watched The Prince of Egypt, so that might be at an advantage. Uh, so the first one, there was the blood. All the fish died. The river turned to blood. Um, everything stank. I remember that. The frogs, frogs jumped out of everywhere. Lice, flies everywhere. Diseased livestock. All the livestock of the Egyptians died. Uh, the boils everywhere. And as Jimmy talked to us last week, the thunderstorm of hail that stripped every green tree. And now we turn our attention now this morning to the plague of locusts. Chapter 10, verse 3. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring, I will bring locusts into your town tomorrow. Now, as we've seen before, Pharaoh refuses to acknowledge the authority of Yahweh, God, and he therefore doesn't want to listen to him, right? And why should he listen to him? He's the king of Egypt. He's the top dog. He wears the big hat. And this is, yeah, so this is what God is saying to him. He's, he's pretty much standing in front of him and saying, like, is that all you got? Egypt is somehow still standing. Pharaoh's still alive. His family's still there. But God issues him this warning. If you refuse to let them go, 
I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. Next one. They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. They will fill your houses and those of all your officials and all the Egyptians, something neither your parents nor your ancestors have ever seen from the day they settled in this land till now. Then Moses turned and left Pharaoh. All right, now this is a game changer, right? The locusts are coming. Locusts. Now, Egypt has presumably, they know what locusts are. It's not all that extraordinary in the Middle East. They probably had it before. Their ancestors have experienced it. And it's not all that extraordinary, as I said, because the hail, the previous plague, the hail, would have made perfect conditions for locusts to breed in the moist sand. But God warns them, this is not like you've seen before. And throughout Scripture, mostly in the Old Testament, um, the Bible uses locusts to describe armies, right? Soldiers, war horses, battalions. And in the book of Revelation as well, soldiers, armies. Uh, So the point is that locusts are bad news. Now for us living here in Melbourne, um, Caroline Springs, I don't think we could understand the gravity of this word, locusts. It's something, for us, I'd imagine, it's something like a pest, right? Like, oh, locusts, just just spray that. That's annoying. But for the people in Egypt who would have heard this warning, locusts, they would have trembled. They would have been paralyzed. Locusts symbolize not just destruction, but they symbolize total destruction. Right? Destruction is when the fish die. That's destruction. When, when the hail falls from the sky and kills everything in the field, yeah, that's destruction. But this is, this is worse, right? I'm sure they'd rather have the hail come back than have the locusts come through. And it's hard for us to imagine such a thing. So just imagine, just picture this, right? Out of nowhere, just a cloud of noise just sweeps past you. Out of nowhere, just covers everything. And then suddenly... You're feeling all these little bites around you, just tiny little jaws, just biting everything just to see if it's edible or not, right? And then just in a flash, coals and all these all scraps. Nothing is left over. Everything is shredded. Um, all the restaurants are all crumbs, right? In a flash. I'd imagine um, kind of like Pacific Islanders in a buffet, right? Just, just a loud noise and everything's gone. I'm Samoan so I can say that. But maybe in a more relatable way, imagine that like all these locusts just came and sat in all your parking spots, right? You'd be furious. Or imagine that every coffee bean in Melbourne, every avocado was gone just like that. We'd burn this place down. I wouldn't know what to do. But although it might be hard for us to imagine the weight of this plague, um, a few people... Many people on this earth know what it's like. Uh, So in 2013, Madagascar suffered a very severe locust infestation. Um, In a a short period of time, almost all the food, all the, the agriculture they had was wiped out by 20 large swarms of locusts just parading through the town. 
And suddenly, out of nowhere, 11 million people's lives are at risk. People and their animals were starving. And international aid had to be sought to come and feed these people that had no food. Locusts, just like that. In the late 1800s as well, in the Midwest, they suffered the same plague. Over four or five states, locusts just came. And in, the, in a few months, everything, almost everything was gone. Um, Eyewitness writes, The noise their myriad jaws make when engaged in their work of destruction can be realized by anyone who has fought a prairie fire or heard the flames passing along before a brisk wind, the low crackling and rasping. The general effect of the two sounds is very much the same. And within a few months of swarming, the locusts, the farmers of that area, lost $300 million worth worth of stock. $300 million worth of damage to them, many of the farmers having to sell their land to move somewhere else just because everything was gone. Locusts are bad news. And the Egyptians know this all too well. And they begged Pharaoh in verse 7 to let the Israelites go. They say to him, how long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? Now any normal man, right? Any normal leader would let these guys go. Egypt is ruined. But behold, God hardens Pharaoh's heart just to, just to make sure he's, he, he's clear, right? He hardens Pharaoh's heart, plague after plague, just to make sure that they really get the point. And so despite the ruin of his country and the plead of his officials, his own people, Pharaoh makes a compromise. Verses 8 to 10. Then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go worship the Lord your God, he said. But tell me who will be going. Moses answered, We will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Pharaoh said, The Lord be with you. If I let you go along with your women and children, clearly you are bent on evil. No, have only the men go and worship the Lord, since that's what you've been asking for. Then Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. Moses comes to Pharaoh. He says, yo, we're going with everything we have. We're men, women, donkeys. And Pharaoh replies with sarcasm. Right, that's what, that's what that means. The Lord be with you. Like, yeah, right. Yeah, like I'm just going to let you walk out like that. And God replies with locusts. Verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over Egypt so that locusts swarm over the land and devour everything growing in the field, everything left by the hail. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt, and the Lord made an east wind blow across the land. All that day and all that night, by morning, the wind had brought the locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail. Everything growing in the fields and the fruit on the trees, nothing green remained 
on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. That's intense. Nothing remained. After all the plagues, they had some stuff left, I guess, stored away, and now nothing remained. Everything was gone. Not a, the, everything was covered black with locusts, right? Nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. Now, this may bring different images to your head. And the clearest one I get was when, is this? So I lived in New Zealand, right? Me and my family lived in New Zealand for a long time. And everything is green in New Zealand, okay? Picture somewhere green. Like, the amount of greenery makes you sick. It makes you green, right? So, like, you'd you'd leave something out for a few days, and, and then something grows on it. It just covers it, just eats it like that. The garden pretty much makes itself over there. And then we moved here um, in February, which is like the height of summer. And um, so we were driving down, like through Derriment Deer Park, Caroline Springs, and I could have sworn the only green thing I saw was that lake. Everything was dead. Everything was scorched by the sun over here. Everything is dead. Nothing, not a green thing was left. That's what Egypt must look like, right? Caroline Springs in February. Look forward to that. But worse. Um, going to verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Darkness that can be felt. Uh, now this can mean a few different things. The Hebrew phrase wouldn't, doesn't suggests that maybe it had like weight, like maybe the darkness weighed this much or you might bump into it on the way to the toilet. But it, it sort of means that like it requires feeling. Like you have to feel around to see where you're going. That's how dark it was. This was complete darkness that covered the land like the plague of locusts. Now today we don't fear the darkness at all. Some of us, some of us do. I kind of do. Um... But some of us like the dark. Like some of us like to travel at night. We have lights on our cars. We have lights in our houses. The streets are lit up. The towns are lit up. What else is lit up? Everything has lights, right? And, and so it's hard for us to come to terms with what this darkness was like. I mean, yeah, it was dark. It's not that dark here. Um, but for, for the ancient world, though, Darkness was death. Literally, darkness meant death, right? The only light they had once the sun was gone was the light the moon provided maybe a few times a month and light from a candle, okay? I can't survive on that. That's terrifying. Nothing would stay open after the sun went down. Once the sun went down, everyone crammed into their houses because as soon as the sun went down, the streets would be full of thieves and murderers and bandits, because who would stop them? You can't see them. Where are you going to go? So everyone just stayed inside, right? You just locked the doors, locked the windows or the wall holes, whatever they had, 
and you just stayed inside. Just, um, and so because of our time, it, it'll be hard for us to imagine what kind of darkness that is. So does anyone remember in 1977, the blackout in New York? Anyone remember that? Yeah, that was great. I heard that on the news. That was crazy. So, there was a blackout in New York, right? You guys don't watch the news? Just imagine this. It's 1977. What year that was? Um, It's New York. The country's poor. They can't afford police. So many police have to be let off or some quit just because there's, there's no money, right? And poverty and discrimination has put everyone on the edge. The whole city on the edge. Millions of people within a few kilometers, right? And then the power goes out. There was a thunderstorm and then all the lights went out. There's no street lights, no home lights. Nothing. And witnesses wrote, in, wrote that instantly they heard roller doors shutting, all the doors shutting, people screaming, and glass being broken. Instantly, just like that. Just in that one night of darkness, the city literally burned. Right? A few hours later into the night, someone writes, at one point, two blocks of Broadway, which separates Bushwick from Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn, were on fire. 35 blocks of Broadway were destroyed. 134 stores looted and 45 of them set ablaze. Thieves stole 50 new Pontiacs from a Bronx car dealership in Brooklyn. Youths were seen backing up cars to targeted stores, tying ropes around the store's grates and using their cars to pull the grates away before looting the store. While 550 police officers were injured in the mayhem, 4,500 looters were arrested. Now, friends, listen to this. In that one night of absolute darkness with no power, 1,616 stores were looted and damaged. 1,037 fires were responded to. And New York saw its largest mass arrest in its history. And because of where we live, we might never be able to experience that. Um, It was a new moon a few weeks ago. That was pretty terrifying. I stood at the door for like a whole five minutes trying to find the right key. That's probably the worst it gets here. We have another story. Um, So the Endurance is a ship that left the ports of England, traveling down South America to Antarctica. I don't know why people want to go to Antarctica. Nothing there. So anyways, this, this ship, 1914, right? This dude named Ernest Shackleton gets on this ship to go to this icy cold land for some reason. And so the ship is designed to go through snow. So it's going through snow. And as, it, as the snow increases, the ship stops, right? It's not moving. And then suddenly, the weather changes. And winter starts kicking in. So the, the, the winds start battering the side of the ship, temperatures drop even more than minus something. It's already cold over there. And, but the worst part is that there is absolute darkness in winter over there. 
absolute darkness. He writes that, Ernest Shackleton writes, that in all the world, there is no desolation more complete than the polar night. It is a return to the ice age. No warmth, no life, no movement. Only those who have experienced it can fully appreciate what it means to be without the sun day after day and week after week. You men, unaccustomed to it, can fight off its effects altogether and it has driven some men mad. Now this is utter darkness, right? The darkness that covered Egypt was a darkness that you could feel in your soul. Yeah? For the Egyptians, I mean, just imagine their, their senses, their souls, their spirits just burning in the darkness. Not only because this is just what darkness, a long period of darkness does to the human body and the human mind, but because the Egyptian gods were silenced in the darkness. They were completely alone. Now, as we've been saying in our previous weeks, the plagues are not just randomized. They're not just whatever God feels like doing this week or whatever. They're strategic attacks on the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And the chief of all gods was the god of the sun. They called Amun-Ra. He was known as the top dog. He sat at the top of the pyramid. Not literally the god diagram pyramid. He's the top. He gives all life. He's the chief. He created everything. Um, and his power is shown in the rising of the sun, right? The sun would come up again. And we're like, oh, praise God. He's, praise Ra. He's resurrected again. And he saved us from the night. And his power is shown in that. Even like the, the, the moon and the stars, they'd, they'd wax and wean. They'd fade. The clouds would cover them. But there's nothing covering the sun, right? And Pharaoh's authority was drawn from that. As an incarnation of this Ra, his job was to pull up the sun, and in that three days of darkness, God shut them up. Can you imagine the terror that reigned in Egypt when God holds down the sun? I mean, these are this God is these people's only hope. This is the highest defense they have against this Hebrew God. Where are you? They must have shouted. Where is their, their, their highest hope? But behold, God has humiliated the God of all gods, Ra, in front of all his worshippers. Now let's take a look at verse 24 to 27. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, you must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshipping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Here we see Pharaoh make another compromise. Letting the people go, but keeping their herds behind, which is you know, fair enough. The people can go, but the cattle can stay. But God is having none of it. God is saying, everyone's going. Despite all the offers 
and negotiations that Pharaoh makes, God wants everyone out and he will, and he will settle for nothing less than every man, woman, and child of Israel. Every, all their possessions, he will settle for nothing less than to take all of them out of Egypt. And the truth is, friends, that God is not a God of compromise like Pharaoh is. He doesn't roll that way. For the Israelites, as Moses put it, not a, not a hoof is to be left behind. Isn't that strange? That the Israelites are, they're going to stay in Egypt just because they can't take their cows with them? But that's how God rolls. He doesn't leave anything behind in Egypt. God wants absolutely all of it. And the same can be said of the Christian life today. When God calls the Israelites out of Egypt, he calls them to take everything they have, and there is no compromise in that. God does not compromise in his worship. When, God calls, when Christ calls us out of our darkness, there is no compromise in worship of God. We are to leave nothing in Egypt. You are to take all into the light and leave nothing in the darkness. Right? We too often like Pharaoh. We're too scared we're going to lose something if we let go of it to God. So we try to hold on to everything we have. And we try to negotiate with God, right? Yeah, I worship God, but I worship Him on my own terms. So we, we barter with God. We're like, okay, you can, have, you can have our Sunday mornings, but Friday and Saturdays are for me, okay? Yeah, I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you my money, but as long as I don't have to serve, talk to those guys, they're weird. Or, I, yeah, I'll give you my time, I'll show up, as long as I can keep all my stuff to myself, Right? Friends, that's not how God rolls. God doesn't work like that. He doesn't just want your Sunday mornings. He wants every breath you take on the other days too. He doesn't just want your money. He wants every strength, all the strength that your body can muster, right? He doesn't just want your possessions. He wants everything that you are, everything that you have. Friends, we are to leave nothing in Egypt. When we are called to follow God to the promised land, there is nothing that is to be left behind. And Moses knows this. Right? God calls him out, and he's not leaving anything behind. He says, all right, we're going with our men, women, and children, and that's it. And our donkeys as well. And the same is to be with us. And that is because we cannot leave anything behind. When Christ calls us out of darkness, out of our slavery, we shouldn't come, come at him with a terms and conditions, right? Working out availabilities and hours and paid leaves, stuff like that. No, that's not what worship is. When God calls us out of the darkness into the light, we are to fall on our faces, right? Sing with the angels. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Take my life, take my money, take, my, take all my days, take my breath. This is what worship is. This is what worship is. All of life, all about Jesus, as Jimmy said. But then, of course, this raises the question. Why? Why are we to worship God with everything that we have? 
Why should we worship God with all that we have? And the answer is simple, friends. Because he deserves it. He is worthy of it, isn't he? I mean, the only reason why he hardens Pharaoh's heart is to show just how much he's worthy, right? The only reason why he brings his people out of Egypt, why he turns the water into blood, is to show just how much he deserves your praise. He sent the locust to Israelites. He sent the locusts into Egypt to show that he is worthy and that they would know that he is the Lord. He held down the sun and he covered Egypt in darkness that they may know that he is the Lord. And not just them, but when they told their kids, they would know. And when they told their grandkids, they would know. And when they told you, you guys would know that he is the Lord, right? Back to the verses 1 and 2. He says, go, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them. That you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them. And that you may know that I am the Lord. You see, when the Lord is unleashing these plagues on Egypt, he's not just, he doesn't just think, have in his mind Moses or the Israelites or Pharaoh, right? He's thinking about you guys right here. He's thinking about you and he's thinking about me. And anyone else who, who will hear this in the future, hear this, this word of these plagues, right? He's turning the, the Nile into blood, and he's saying, yo, Albert's going to flip when he hears about this. He's going to go mental. He pours locusts all over Egypt, and he's saying, yo, you're not going to believe this when you hear about this. He silences the sun and pours darkness over Egypt, and he says, yo, CSA, Caroline Springs will worship me when they hear what I did. I mean, Pharaoh's own officials say to him, yo, what are you doing, man? Let these people go. Egypt is ruined. Like, we, don't, we still don't understand how they built the pyramids, how they ran their societies, right? But God humiliates them. Humiliates the whole civilization in front of his people, and he says to his people, I am the Lord. I am the sun. I, I raise the sun in the morning and set it at night. Right? I control the winds. Every beast in the field listens to me. Every winged creature of the sky trembles at my voice. Right? Can you find? I dare you to find another one like me. Find another God like me. Where is your Ra? Where is your Isis, your Osiris, your Anubis? Where are they? I am the Lord, he says. I am that I am. He gives his son to die so that his people might be saved. And he says, the world is going to flip when they hear about this. They're not going to believe their ears. They're not going to believe their eyes when they hear what I did. They will know that I am the Lord. Right? When they see how I spared their judgment, and laid it in the body of my son, they will know. When they see that I have, when they hear that I have brought them out of their slavery in Egypt and prepared for them a paradise beyond the Red Sea, they will know that I am the Lord. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, God says, 
To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary in his understanding no one can fathom. Friends, this is the God who we serve. Amen? This is the God who desires and deserves nothing less than everything we have. And why? Because of what he has already done for us. The redemption of his people. Israel, you, me. And the story of redemption, as we've seen God, Moses was to tell to his kids and their kids so that they would know the story of redemption. God drawing his people out of Egypt, out of their slavery. And this story of redemption affected every, every part of their life, all, all, all how they lived, how they dressed, how they looked, how they ate, right? The redemption shaped Israel, all of it. Deuteronomy 6, verses 20 to 24. Moses says, In the future, when your sons ask you, what is the meaning of the Lord's What is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and the laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible on Egypt, and brought us, Egypt and Pharaoh, and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in, and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. Friends, our story of redemption is in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen, of his son. And that should shape the way we live. Shape the way we live all of our lives. And it's meant to. God is not a God of compromise. He paid for it all. He's not willing to leave any part of you unredeemed, unsaved, unwashed by the blood of his cross. Amen? He's washed it all, so he deserves it all. He wants it all. And when the world asks you, why are we to worship God with everything that we have? Why are we to worship this God with our hearts, our souls, our minds, our strength? Say to them, Ephesians 2, we were dead in our transgressions and sin, in which we used to live when we followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgression. It is by grace we have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages 
he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not from ourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Friends, God has brought us out of our slavery to sin and delivered us with a mighty hand, the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. What a response that is. How about that to tell your grandkids, eh? Then just tell your kids, tell the world. Tell the whole world of what God has done and let them know that there is one God in heaven. He alone is the Lord. Amen? All right, let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, you hold the sun in its place and you hold the moon in its place. You have set the limits for the seas, Lord. You have named all the stars, Father. Every blade of grass on the field, you know. I thank you, Lord, that by your grace and your mercy, we have been drawn from our slavery into the freedom in Christ Jesus. We have been washed by your blood, Father, set apart. Father, I thank you so much, Lord. Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to give all of our lives to you in worship. Every part of our lives, Father, nothing hidden in worship to you. And I pray that we wouldn't do this in secret, Lord, in secret one day a week, Father, but I pray that we would do this in boldness so that everyone might see, everyone might hear what the Lord God has done and know that he is the Lord. For you alone are worthy of everything, Father. You alone deserve all our praise. Not for our sake, Father, but for your glory. Amen.